podcast episode starting podcast music welcome to episode five of doug notes this episode is doug on doug the second version where we talk about episode four so i can see the numbering system on this getting a little out of hand but anyway here we are and welcome back uh this episode will be a reaction to my previous episode titled polemic uh so um last week's essay was a bit of a smattering i originally intended to spend a bit more time on why our politicians are so inept but clearly it was diverted into a few rants and ramblings about k-cups general observations around power and how our ability to recall detail impacts our choices uh, the piece opens with me playing the song life by the drop on guitar, um, a great little blues ditty written by a Texas drummer named Doyle Bramhall in partnership with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, it was recorded by Vaughan and released posthumously. Uh, the song has little to no connection to the larger essay, but I just needed a piece of music to kick the thing off, so that seems to be what people do on podcasts. I've observed recently that the podcast format often leans on interstitial pieces of music that tie segments together or transition between storytellers. And I'm sure some cliches have grown out of that, so I might have a little fun with that myself down the road. In any event, back to the essay. Uh, I began by inaccurately describing a political comic from memory, although where else would I describe it from? Uh, the sense of consistency that we rely upon to make sense of our lives comes from our memory. It's bound to our experience of time, that something happened in the past because we can remember it. And we can contrast our current experience with our recall of our past experience. I'm not sure I'm ready to commit to the idea that if we don't remember it, it didn't happen. That's a bit like the old joke, if a tree falls in the forest and hits a mime, does anyone care? But I think you get what I'm saying. It's what makes dementia so tragic. If I had a billion dollars, despite the climate and the wars, I'm not sure I'd focus on solving anything else. But moving on. Uh, I described this comic, failing to mention on top of my other faults that my memory had also transposed the illustration into black and white. Um, I also have to admit that as I was writing that section, I felt a pang of anxiety describing the racial aspects of the comic. Um, my memory had created a caricature of a Latino laborer. Seeing the comic again before my eyes, I realized that the artist was representing some other ethnicity. And despite having lived for nine months in the very region of Australia that the artist was from, I realized I was still ignorant of which group the anti-immigration contingent would consider persona non grata. What if I got it wrong? Was the person Aboriginal? There's an active movement to recognize Aboriginal Australians. Is it wrong to say Aborigine these days? Is that like Indian versus Native American? Anyway, um, there's a movement to recognize the aboriginals as the native occupants of the territory, much like how in the U.S. many people choose to perform land acknowledgments. But was this character meant to be straight up black? Indonesian? Many Indonesians are quite dark-skinned. Does it matter? Anyway, all of this to say I got caught up in the minefield of all of those thoughts, and I didn't want to seem disrespectful, because after all, the whole point of the comic is to point out how those in power manipulate the disenfranchised so that they can become too distracted in fighting each other to notice how much has been stolen from them by the rich and the powerful. But here I am talking about how details matter and trying to get away with smoothing over the details. So, poor me. Uh, I also freely do Australian and British accents in this piece, which in theory could offend the Brits or the Aussies. 
I presumably could not get away with attempting to parody an Indonesian speaking English. And I suppose the reason comes down to what my mother always told me, that Mel Brooks can tell jokes about Jews because he is one. So I'm an English-speaking white guy, and I can presumably make jokes about other English-speaking white guys. And that's the rule. However, I have to mention that as an American who's primarily heard ESL learners speak English with an American accent, I have found it amusing in the past to hear immigrants learning British or Australian English speak with those accents. So hearing a first-generation Chinese-Australian trying to naturally drop mate into a conversation is just, I don't know, it's kind of amusing. Um, I suppose it's because to us Americans, Australian English has long had this comic factor. Um, and I suppose it's all Paul Hogan's fault. I guess some of you may be familiar with the British chef Jamie Oliver and his mentor Gennaro Cantaldo. And so for Americans, listening to Gennaro speak, you'll hear what I mean. It's a blend of an Italian, it's a strong blend of an Italian accent or inflection within a British accent. And I don't know, it's kind of amusing to me. Um, I referenced the musical My Fair Lady in the piece, and this reminds me of that other great moment in My Fair Lady, where Henry Higgins sings, Why Can't the English Teach Their Children How to Speak? Uh, part of which goes, An Englishman's way of speaking absolutely classifies him. The moment he talks, he makes some other Englishman despise him. One common language I'm afraid we'll never get. Oh, why can't the English learn to set a good example to people whose English is painful to your ears? The Scotch and the Irish leave you close to tears. There even are places where English completely disappears. Well, in America, they haven't used it for years. Bing bong, bing bong, podcast transition. I go on to describe the fading of the library and make a joke about an Aunt Ethel and the gossip of her sewing circle. And I guess I still don't quite know where that archetype came from. I did a bit of Googling on it. I almost said that I did a bit of research, as if a single Google search can constitute research, but it could be related to the character of Ethel in the show I Love Lucy? Maybe? I still believe that libraries can be important centerpieces in society. Many have tried to modernize them, offering video games, 3D printing services, ebooks, and so on. Um, if you don't take advantage of the ebooks offered by your library, it's a great service that they provide. You can read them right on your Kindle, and it saves you from collecting a whole bunch of books that you don't feel that you necessarily need to buy, but are nonetheless curious about. Um, I also don't see why they couldn't be stronger gathering places for more community building. But then I switch gears, and I try to express my befuddlement at why the rich and powerful exist and do what they do. I spent a lot of time railing against the K-Cup, but that's just because it's an easy target and speaks to how convenience has become the driver of so much absurdity in capitalism. We really do still use K-cups in our household, as does much of my family, and much of it is just out of habit and a feedback loop gone wild, really. Uh, we find ourselves a bit tired and worn out from spending a lot of hours at work, and then having to keep up with the domestics and the family at home. So we wake up a bit groggy and decide we need a solution to help, you know, wake ourselves up. So we brew ourselves a cup of coffee. But the coffee doesn't give us energy. There really isn't a chemical mechanism in that for co in coffee, so much as it masks the symptoms of our exhaustion. And it does this largely with caffeine, which happens to be a mildly addictive chemical. And then over time, our employers demand more of us, and we're addicted, so we drink more coffee. And now we have even less time in the day to get all the work done. 
and we couldn't possibly spend the five and ten minutes it would take to grind and brew a popper cup from beans, as the bean heads would tell you to do, so here comes the K-cup. And in 90 seconds flat, you can have a pretty mediocre cup of coffee at your desk and get to all the emails and tweets and Instagram posts and slacks and Teams posts and Jira tickets that dominate so many of our lives. It's madness, I'm telling you. And we should rebel hard against it, if not for the plastics and the ecological disaster, because it's a symptom of the larger race of life that we've all become bound up in. Life should be slower. It should be savored, like a fine cup of coffee. But if we slow down, someone else will hustle faster and try to take what we have. And we can't have that. Where we are in a society is a culmination of all the little choices, the little concessions that we've given up to be more comfortable. Uh, and to appease the people who have power. Um, and it's also because of our poorly calibrated human instincts. Just as our indulgence in fast food is the result of our primate needs for fats and sugars gone wild. But here I start to sound like a Protestant, like a priest railing against sin, and that scares me. And that's why this podcast exists. I don't know how to walk that line between saying you need to do better and saying no judgment, live your life, you do you. I'm also reminded of an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, a fantastic program if you haven't seen it. And there's this one episode where the crew takes some shore leave on a resort planet called Risa. It's sometimes described as a pleasure planet. And Risa's paradise is made possible by an elaborate planetary climate control system. Mr. Worf, the over-serious Klanon, a lover of honor and discipline, finds the local frivolity distasteful. And he stumbles upon a rally led by a charismatic man who also finds the Rhysians to be childish and unserious and wants to teach them all a lesson in how fragile their paradise can be. So his group sabotages the climate control system. And soon it starts to rain heavily and violent storms spring up across the planet, dampening everyone's spirit. However, the storms eventually give way to earthquakes and even more instability. And as the stakes go up, Mr. Worf realizes that they've taken things too far and it wasn't his place to deny these people the right to fun. And so I'm one of those people who watches that episode and has to admit that I find myself sympathizing with the Puritans. After all, the Borg and the Dominion are out there trying to conquer the Quadrant. How can anyone indulge or overindulge in such pleasure knowing how much suffering is taking place in the rest of the galaxy? But then I think... If we all lightened up a bit and had more leisure time, at least enough time to make a proper cup of coffee, would that be so bad? So you see, as I said in episode one, we have met the enemy and he is us. If you didn't get my Mickey's Christmas Carol reference in the essay, the idea here is that the solicitors ask Scrooge for a donation, and he tells them that if he gave his money away and they solved the issue of poverty, then these solicitors would be out of a job. They wouldn't have any money to collect for the poor. We can't have that, right? On a related note, I thought it was so interesting that when same-sex couples were finally able to marry, one of the most notable uh, nonprofits fighting for that right shut down. I'd never heard of such a thing before. The nonprofit was started specifically to advocate for marriage equality. It got what it wanted and then disbanded, just as it should have. I reference Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I realize he was a controversial figure in his life. Uh, once a darling of the left, after 9-11, he started to align his, more of his thinking with the right-wingers promoting the war in Iraq, and that was unfortunate. He also wrote a piece in Vanity Fair called Why Women Aren't Funny, which I'm sure endeared him to many people. Uh, but I enjoyed listening to him precisely because his political outlook was largely his own and difficult to pin down. 
and it was also fun in the mid-2000s to watch him debate dogmatists and make them squirm. So, uh, in the essay, in the podcast, I do a poor impression, and hey, in many ways, I'm still a fan. Um, and at the end, I talk about totalitarianism, dogmatic thinking, and it all sounds very high-minded, and if I'm being honest, uh, pretentious. But I do feel like there's something there about the difference between force and violence, and I'm trying to tie that to this idea about how we can be firmer in demanding that those in power either do better with it or give it up entirely. Um, I think it's going to be a, a, have to be a, a ground-up movement to advocate for that change, um, but then it's going to have to be a top-down movement to a degree to make that change within these large power structures. Um, you know, I don't necessarily blame consumers for using K-cups. They're available, they're in the stores, they're convenient, um, and our lives are crazy. I get it. Um, the onus, the burden should be on the corporations to find better solutions and to be environmentally responsible and responsible to the society that they provide services and products to. Perhaps it should be a rule that any business over a certain size that wants to incorporate needs to have um, an environmental and social responsibility plan uh, before getting started that dives into you know, a cost-benefit analysis of how their product will impact culture. Um, maybe some businesses already do that. Maybe some countries already have that rule. I don't know. I could start digging into that and maybe more on that to come. I don't know what next week's essay will be about yet. Uh, I might talk about the martial arts, but in any event, um, I hope that was some useful context about the previous week's episode and um, we'll keep talking. So thanks a bunch. Hope you enjoyed listening and have a good week. Podcast music ending. But slightly optimistic. Ba-da-do-bum, bum, bum.